Hello from Austin. Today is March 2nd, and this is episode 6 of the National Security Law Podcast. I'm Bobby Chesney, a professor here at the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm Steve Lottett. Bobby, we made it to six. Six episodes. They, have, they haven't canceled us yet. They haven't canceled us yet. Oh, wait. They can't cancel us as long as we just keep putting these out there. Well, I guess, you know, we could lose our, our readership of 11. Yeah, we can, we can go down from there. So, Bobby, um, we're recording on Thursday this week. That's my bad. Yeah, um, why, why is that? Where, where have you been? Where have I been? Um, I've been banging my head against walls very, very slowly. Um, so I actually, as I think we alluded to on last week's episode, um, I've been in Ireland for the last week, um, actually testifying in this ongoing interesting data privacy case uh, between the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, or Data Privacy Commissioner, I think it's protection, um, <laughs> and Facebook. Uh, you, I should probably know the answer to that question. Um, contempt which, of court right there. Seriously. Well, eh, there was other contempt going on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully we'll have a chance for the end of the episode today to talk a bit about that in the broader context. Bobby, this week we saw the beginning of this, I guess, year-long conversation about reform of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Yes, it is the year of 702 renewal, and the uh, the official launch party was uh, this week with uh, the, the, the hearing. The cold open. The cold open, although, you know, it was, it was relatively warm. So we'll, we'll have a little bit to say about that, although, just to be clear, this won't be our, our sooner or later we will have a deep dive into 702. This, this won't really be it. We're going to just be more... Marking the issue. But in case you left your scorecards at home, sports fans, Section 702 is the centerpiece of what's known as the FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Amendments Act of 2008. This is one of the most important statutory reforms in government surveillance authorities. Bobby, I'd say ever, um, but certainly in the post-9-11 era. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say... I don't think it's quite up there with the creation of FISA itself, yeah. but it's it's a huge deal. And it, it, it put on a firm statutory foundation um, some, I guess... Some controversial uh, practices involving um, uh, involving electronic surveillance from the post 9/11 period, and it's it's always uh, been necessary every few years to come. In various ways, it's had to be renewed, and each time it comes up, each time it sunsets, it's an occasion to dig in in light of the changing sort of ecosystem of concerns about surveillance and terrorism and changing land, technology and changing technology. And and each time we we've learned a little bit more, and the the amount of knowledge we've got. I, I don't think, you know, to kind of cut to the chase on it, I don't think there's any doubt it will get renewed. The interesting question is with what kind of changes and bells and whistles and what all might get tacked onto the package. And we'll get to this, but just really quickly so that folks don't get too lost in the weeds already. Bobby, to me, the big thing to understand about 702 is it's two major features, right? One, it's often content information, not just like metadata like the oh, phone yeah, records. This is, this is oriented towards content. But here. two, that it's really about the collection of data traveling uh, stored in the United States that's actually primarily originating from and indeed targeting non-U.S. persons outside the U.S. So when this data happens to transit the U.S., when it actually gets stored on, say, a Facebook server, right, that's where 702 is such a big part of the story. Yeah, the, the way to think about it, and we'll, again, we'll talk in much more detail <laughs> later on. We'll have a little episode. This I is think. the prequel. This is the prequel. They, I, can, I can hear people. They're not changing the channel, but whatever the uh, uh, podcast equivalent is. Um, real quick then, the, the way I talk about it in class sometimes is that the 702 system enables the government, in effect, to get the ring of power. And what happens is <laughs> they, they make you make the case to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court 
that you have a system that is at, at a system-wide basis as a matter of combining technology and policy and, and, and employee training and oversight, the system is going to be a well-tailored system for making sure that you're only collecting the information of non-citizens outside the United States. That's who the target is. That's whose information you're trying to get. Now, there's going to be some incidental collection. There's always, always well, ways. We might, we might fight over the word incidental in that Indeed. context. There's, there's various ways in which uh, U.S. person information might also end up in the mix, and then that has to be policed for as well. So the idea is you describe the whole system to the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and if they think, if they think you've done a good enough job, then you get the Ring of Power. What the Ring of Power enables you to do, <laughs> Steve, is you can use the Ring of Power to compel various U.S. companies or companies present in the U.S. to respond to your directives to produce on a rolling basis, perhaps, uh, information they've got in their third-party hands about that target. And this is where we get the PRISM and Upstream programs, um, which I suspect we're going to spend a lot more time on in a future episode. Absolutely. So, so Bobby, we had this grand plan that I was going to swoop back in from Ireland. We were going to have this great conversation about data privacy, um, and it was going to be one of those really interesting academic episodes that we wanted to have when we first planned this podcast. And then the Washington Post spoiled our fun. They keep doing this. So, so what did they do? Well, we've got this uh, very controversial episode involving uh, the Attorney General. And so I think, Steve, we should perhaps take the occasion first to lay out what is it that, from the public record, um, is more or less clear, clearly the case as to what happened. Then let's talk about the legal implications. So let's talk about where this started, right? So the Washington Post broke a story about 8 or 9 o'clock Eastern Time last night, that's Wednesday, March 1st, um, about statements that set, then-Senator Sessions made, we should say, while under oath, at his confirmation hearing in response to questions from Minnesota Senator Al Franken. Bobby, what were the statements? Okay, so the... The question, and I don't know if you happen to have the text. I'm going to pull up the literal text. In but front why of you. Put it, put so, Senator, Senator Franken, this is the, the confirmation hearing for Jeff Sessions. And Senator Franken asked a question that had to do with um, what, as Attorney General, what would Jeff Sessions do with respect to information about possible uh, ties between or contacts between, any contacts between the Russian government and, and campaign officials? And you have the text now? Yeah, so here's what Senator Franken said. Yeah, now, let's again, get it very clearly. Uh, I'm not going to imitate Stuart Smalley because Stuart Smalley, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, and doggone it, people don't like me. Please don't. Um, but here's what Senator Franken said. I'm telling you this as it's coming out so you know, but if it's true, it's obviously extremely serious, and if there's any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, so note, Bobby, right, not substance, just while you were campaigning, uh, Senator Franklin said, what will you do? And here's the quote uh, from the uh, hearing transcript from Senator Sessions. Senator Franklin, I'm not aware of any of these activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have, did not have, communications with the Russians, comma, and I'm unable to comment on it, period, close quote. So, Bobby, that's the quote. Yep. Um, and the story the Washington Post broke last night is, in fact, Senator Sessions had at least two different contacts uh, with Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. This is the Russian ambassador to the United States, who's also been described as the top spy recruiter, um, right, for the Russians in oh, the United I've, States. I've, I've heard it. I've heard him described differently. There was at least one thing, maybe in the Post this morning, describing him as 
in the view of at least one unnamed former official, truly a, a diplomat. Um, but not, why don't we all agree? Russian. Sure. No, he's <laughs> Russian. He's, he's Vladimir Putin's ambassador to the United States. And so, and, and so if Sessions did indeed have these two contacts with him, which the Washington Post reported, and which, frankly, Senator Sessions' spokesperson appeared to confirm. Yeah, yeah. so let's say night. something about what those contacts were. So the, one of them was at a Heritage Foundation event during the Republican National Convention on the sort of the sidelines of the convention, where, as I understand it, Sessions was speaking. When he finished speaking, there, there were a number of foreign diplomats there. Several of them collectively approached Sessions afterwards, and as often happens at these events, there's a, there's a scrum, people are talking, and, and the Russian ambassador was one of the persons that Sessions spoke to at that time. There's no indication, we don't have anything in the record to show what they were talking about. There's no particular reason to think it was anything other than what happens all the time at events like that. The other event, uh, the other contact was one among two dozen plus contacts Sessions had as a senator, uh, as a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee with foreign diplomats, or at least that's the, the, the way I understand it. Well, that's it. how the Justice Department uh, uh, yeah. characterized right. it. Now, what's interesting about the Washington Post story is it seems like they anticipated this exact, I don't want to call it a defense, right, but this exact response, yeah. because the Post apparently spoke to um, most of the other senators on the Senate Armed Services Committee who all said that they did not have similar contacts with at least the Russians. They said, they said just the, they, they did say 20-something of them said in 2016 they had not had an office visitor or a similar Senate Armed Services Committee oriented contact with the Russians, but I don't think any of them said anything about how this would be actually out of the ordinary for the role. No, in no, fact, no. I think it's actually rather ordinary. Well, for so, the I mean, I don't, I, the question to me, Bobby, is not whether the contact was inappropriate. The question oh, to right. me is, is Senator Sessions' statements under oath, at his confirmation hearing to Senator Franken. No, but, but it's highly relevant what the nature of the contact was, because if it really was, as has been suggested, a run-of-the-mill senatorial role... Then why not say so? Well, I think they're trying to say so now, but they're also in, in panicky damage control mode. But let me, let me finish this. This, yeah. this thought is that if it really was innocuous, the, the, the one contact was just a glancing conference, you know, informal chit-chat. The other one was an office visit that really wasn't in any way about... Trump stuff, but was about... Right. Let's say it's about Syria. Yeah, whatever, yeah, exactly. There's any number of things a Senate Armed Services Committee member might talk to somebody in the capacity about. If that's the case, then it lends some degree of support to the core argument that seems to be the argument as to why he said what he said to Franken in the testimony. Now, he clearly had contact. The argument, as I understand it, is, look, from the larger context of what Franken was asking about, what they were talking about, he was interpreting this as... Or he was responding at, in terms of a bifurcation between his role as a possible surrogate for the campaign, talking with Russians about campaign-related stuff or Trump stuff, and his actual job as a senator doing senator things. So the claim is, if he misremembered this or he did misremember this, it's because he was thinking of the one and not the other. Yeah, but I guess, I mean... It as a human being, if you're asked a question, whether you had That's contacts... That's usually how it is with me. Well, right. If you're asked a question about whether you had contacts with the Russians, yeah. right, um, and the relevant uh, frame for the question is over a period of time, are you really thinking about, well, it depends on whether you mean in my capacity as a United States senator or as a member of a campaign team? And not just a member, Bobby, right? One of the senior national security advisors to the entire campaign. So the full context isn't just that he was asking about the period of time. The full context is they were talking about the issue of campaign contact with the Russians. That was totally what they're focused on. True. Look, if it were me, I'd like to think that my answer would have been, look, you know, 
let's take me as an example. In my capacity as a senator, and sometimes just being at events in Washington, I have seen and have exchanged words with, say, the Russian ambassador. Part of my job. Right. But we didn't talk about campaign stuff. Now, that's what I would have said if that were the truth. Um, but then Bobby again, I had, for Senate 2018. There you go. <laughs> send, send your donations now. Um, I think uh, it's easy for me to say that having had a day of hearing about this story and, and reflecting on, well, what would I have done in that circumstance? Um, people are people. I don't think it's beyond the pale that he may have genuinely in good faith had the, this bifurcation of the roles in mind and was trying to answer us to the one thing, not really thinking about how these other things, if they really weren't talking in any way about Trump or the campaign, it may not have been on his radar to say it. And it or at least it's it's in the realm of good faith mistake. Now, so, so if the question was, right, if the question that was put to him was, as a member of the campaign, did you communicate with the Russians, right? I would understand that. But the question was, have you had contact with the Russians? Yeah, the full question, as you said earlier, it was it was a whole the whole discussion was about campaign connection to the Russians. It wasn't just a general. By the way, have you talked to any Russians lately? I look, I completely agree with you that given what I we know, I did not have communications with the Russians. That's the quote, right? In response to the full, go back and read the full. I read the I full understand, thing but I guess what I'm just trying to say is like it seems to me that. Having just testified under oath, right, for, for two days, um, where I was rather paranoid about the prospect of perjuring myself, right? It seems to me that at that point, unless you literally don't remember the conversation, the normal human response is to say, is to answer the question contextually, is to say, Senator, yeah, I've right. had, I agree with you that. know, I've, I, I briefly bumped into the ambassador in this context, we have this visit here, um, but I can say, with complete confidence and unequivocally that it had nothing to do with the campaign. Look, it's it's what I would have said. It's what I would have said. But I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that this is in, beyond the pale. If Now, again, here, there's a key premise. We're assuming that when he met with the ambassador, in fact, they didn't talk about campaign right. stuff. That's a different deal. And, and you know what's interesting here? Everyone wants to compare this to the Flynn scenario. The thing about the Flynn communications were they were over the phone. So they were they were captured through SIGINT. Presumably, this was not. I think we think it's an office visit, yeah. and I'm pretty sure it was not recorded or collected. But so, let, but so let's add two more pieces here, right? So the yeah. first is what Senator Sessions said in his statement last night. Um, quote, I never met with any Russian officials to discuss issues of the campaign. I have no idea what this allegation is about. It is false, right? Um, and then there was also a statement out of the White House that any conversation about the election was, quote, superficial, unquote. Ah, now those are, yeah. It, it's Those su- seem inconsistent to me. Well, not inconsistent, because they say any conversation, not that there was conversation. But the fact that they say that they obviously open, their, uh, they open the door to the possibility that if there was a communication about the campaign, it was superficial. What you wonder, though, is it not the case, Steve, that in that, say, the Heritage Foundation after speech scrum, yeah. someone said to him, oh, you sure have been busy with that campaign. Uh, yes, I have, Mr. Ambassador. It's been an interesting time. Then, a superficial then, conversation. Then that has campaign. to be part of the answer to Franken. Because then even by your reading of parsing the question as being distinguishing 
the campaign surrogate Jeff Sessions from Senator Jeff Sessions, right? Even that superficial conversation about the campaign comes to me within the ambit of Franken's question. If he remembered it at the time, but if it's that superficial, it's not beyond the realm that he doesn't didn't remember it at the Fine. time. Fine. So then say that then the statement should not be right. I never met with any Russian officials to discuss issues of the campaign. The statement should be I may have briefly discussed how the campaign was going. Well, so to, to look at the statement, the first one where he says I never met with any Russian officials to discuss issues of the campaign. It's Which, a very it's way, a very specific and odd formulation. It's a very strange circumlocution. It, it is it is a, an awkward kind of phrasing. Um, it opens the door towards the possibility that, oh, I may have met with them to discuss things the Trump administration might do as a policy matter, but we didn't talk about the campaign as such. Which, by the way, but, back to our discussion of Mike Flynn and the Logan Act, wouldn't bother me. Like, no, no, no. that's what campaigns do. No, as, as we said in an earlier podcast, you know, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Yeah. It's, it's the effort to try to avoid what would be a medium problem and thereby in your avoidance creating a big problem. And I think that's what's happened here. Like you and I may disagree about just how nefarious and problematic Senator Sessions or statement to Al Franken in that context yeah. was. That's fine. Maybe yeah. we just disagree. Yeah. But they have botched the response no, to this. It, and, that's, and that doesn't surprise me at all because it, it, as the president himself said, what do you get? What grade did he give himself for communication? C plus. Yeah, C plus. I'm like, well, I, you know, I on, guess the, C, on the curve. C plus is a fine-tuned machine, apparently. <laughs> so it, it's it's proven to be quite true once again. They certainly are screwing up there. I think that by failing to do what they should have done, which is to instantly come forth with a strong mea culpa, saying, "Look, okay, I, a combination of me thinking something slightly different from what you may have been thinking." And the minorness of the contact and the minorness of what we're talking about led me to say something in retrospect is easily distorted out of proportion. Let me be clear. I'm super sorry. I was not more forthcoming. This is totally on me. I was... Uh, he Period should, at the end. He should do that. He should do that and, and, and all that. But all that said, the legal questions, we should add, there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother basis for controversy. There's the written question right. that Leahy sent. That's right. So do you want to say something about well, what but that But before was? we get that, I, I also think, Bobby, we can't assess the Sessions Franken exchange in a vacuum, right? Because given the Flynn imbroglio, if I can call it that, um, it's not like this is a one-off thing, right? Yeah. Like, the to me, part of the concern here is not just that Jeff Sessions gave an awfully strange answer to Al Franken, whether it was legally problematic or not, um, it's that this is history repeating, right? I mean, the why why is it so hard for people to remember conversations with Ambassador Kislyak? <laughs> He's a magic man. He has a way of... Uh, he has a neuralizer. His, it's like men in black. The neuralizer. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, I mean, right, so so part of the problem is that, you know, this is a context in which the smell of the thing matters. Right. So the, what's funny is that you've, you've obviously got people who are in a position to potentially have similar problems, and if you're if you're one of those persons and you're listening now, might we recommend that you get your story straight right now and, and, and be prepared for things to perhaps seem innocuous to you and not seem innocuous to other people and have a proper fulsome response. Right. So here's the Leahy question. So as part of the confirmation process, Leahy sent a written series yeah. of questions to then Senator Sessions, um, and I'm just reading this off of off of the yeah. internet. Several of the president-elect's nominees or senior advisors have Russian ties. Have you, underscore you, been in contact with anyone connected to any part of the Russian government about the 2016 election? So there we go. There's the key. Either before or after election day. Response, no. Right. And as long as it's true that the things he talked with the ambassador about were not about the election, that's a true statement and there's nothing to see there. And it illustrates how... 
he his position is that's kind of the same question. I thought that's what Franken was asking me as well, and that's why I answered in similar fashion. Uh, Franken's words can be parsed in a way that make it seem broader. I think the context makes it seem more like Leahy's written question, which clearly is narrowed in that respect. Uh, all of which is why I think turning to the legal questions, yep. I, it, it all bets are off if it turns out somehow, some way, someone can show that in fact they did talk about the election. Well, so they did so, talk so, about so the let campaign. me read the relevant statute. So the federal perjury statute, which is 18 U.S.C. 1621, if you're following at home, um, provides that whoever having taken an oath before a competent tribunal officer or person, um, I think we can all agree that the confirmation yep. Yep. hearing satisfies Check. this requirement, um, <sighs> willfully and contrary to such oath, states or subscribes any material matter which he does not believe to be true. He does not believe to be true. Not that, not that he's wrong, he, or that other people believe not to right. be true, that he himself... It's a high, it's, it's, it's a high yeah. bar. And, Culpable and, mental state. And listen, there's never going to be a prosecution. I mean, no right? question, right. Who's, the, who's right. the Attorney General? Fortunately, we're academics and we can just pontificate on this as if maybe there would be. So there's also think, an interesting question about whether he might have speech or debate clause immunity. That's the best part. Because, right, this is the rare context where you had a senator testifying yeah. at his own confirmation so hearing. I, I would argue that he does not have that immunity for this speech because it was not in his senatorial capacity. It was in, it was in his function as a nominee to the executive Absolutely. branch. Absolutely. Um, it's not going to be, a, we're not going right. to get there. It's all moot. But okay, so <laughs> just to take it for what it's worth as an academic exercise, uh, I would certainly say that the Leahy written question and his written response, barring evidence of what they actually talked about being different than what he said, clearly n n nothing to go on there. Um, and frankly, I think that the context, my context-based reading of how Franken asked him a question and, and the, way he's, the way he has argued in effect that that context colored his response, and his response there was just like his response to Leahy's, that to me takes uh, the possibility of a violation of Section 1621 sub 1 it, off I, the table. I guess it just depends on whether you read his response to Franken literally, right? Where he says, I did not have communications with the Russians. But 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 the, but you can't because we're trying to detect his mental state. Did he believe what he said not to be true? Yeah, right, but what he said, right, possibly, that, but Bobby, yeah. but what he said may not have been what he meant, right? What he the statute doesn't say what did you mean? The statute says what did you say? And what he said was I did not have communications with the Russians. Did Jeff Sessions really not know at the time I, I think he it's said much that? Too, to much too narrow. You can't, you can't disaggregate it from the context of the question he thought he was answering. He didn't say all the words. He didn't preface his remark by saying, well, I'm assuming we mean here contact relating to the campaign. In that case, I did not have that kind of contact <laughs> with the Russians. But he clearly didn't express himself well. But if I'm right about the context, then that makes this not, not a, an, an issue. But not actually one. I listen, it's never it's not going anywhere. We can all agree on that. Sure. I will say this does bring me back, as it has brought many people back, to the now what, twenty year old conversation about that great quote from President Clinton, right? <laughs> it depends on what the meaning of is. Oh is. yes. How many people came to law school because of that? How many people did not go to law school because of that? I mean, but that's where we are, right? And that's part of the problem with the perjury statute. All right. So yeah. listen, I, I think we will respectfully disagree. Um, about just how much of a yeah, how much jeopardy there is. No, there's no jeopardy. Yeah. I, I don't right, know you're right. There's no jeopardy, jeopardy at all. Um, how much theoretical? So I think there's more theoretical jeopardy because I think it's someone with Jeff Sessions' experience, with his understanding of Senate procedure, with his legal acumen, 
who makes a statement like that and does not seek to clarify it until it's reported after yeah. the fact, I think is in much more theoretical legal jeopardy um, than, than it sounds like you do. And I know people yeah. like our friend Ben Wittes thinks. Yeah. So I, th I think that there's, I think, so I think why does this matter? Same thing. Yeah, so why does this matter? Because, of course, this is not the only question. There, there's not going to be a perjury prosecution. Move on to issue number two. Should he recuse himself from Russia-related investigations? Yes. And I think probably said. So. Now, this isn't really. Is this a legal question, Steve? I think it's not a legal question. It's not. I mean, so it's not a legal question. I mean, so, so let's back up a second, right? Yeah. There has already been the commencement of apparently some kind of investigation. Right. We can assume. Um, well, we know that we the know. FBI, right, <laughs> right, has been doing something right. um, to investigate under some broadly defined umbrella Russian influence in the election. Mm -hmm. Can we call it that yeah. without getting into trouble? Right. And and it's not. Let's be clear. It's not as if the attorney general runs these investigations. The idea is, nonetheless... No, the, a, a White, no, no the White House just calls the U.S. attorney and tells yeah, them they, what to do. They can, yeah, they don't go through the... Uh, yes, that's Which, a whole, by the way... That's a whole other issue we oh should talk gosh. about. Oh, my gosh. But let, one, one fiasco at a time. Right, let, let's destroy one norm of the separation of powers at a time. <laughs> um, so, nonetheless, even though the attorney general obviously does not spend his or her day, you know, dwelling on one particular investigation, there is there are a variety of reporting relationships, and we have examples in the past, don't we, of attorney generals who recuse themselves because of there's both the you know personal involvement or the appearance of, of personal involvement, and never forget the importance of appearance in these things. That's right. So I guess the the question is twofold to me, Bobby. Right. First, should he recuse? Second, even if he recuses, is this perhaps the best evidence yet? that the Justice Department more generally is not the right forum for the investigation into whatever role Russia did or did not play in the election. Oh, I, th I think we can't prejudge it like that. So let's look back to the, uh, the, the situation with John Ashcroft, Jim Comey, and Patrick Fitzgerald, and the, the Valerie Plain leak investigation uh, during the first term of the Bush administration. Uh, Attorney General Ashcroft recuses himself. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Jim Comey uh, now our FBI director, not unrelated to this story, uh, is is acting as the attorney general, and in that capacity, appoints Pat Fitzgerald as a special counsel. The case goes forward, secures a secures a conviction in, in, in matters that go to core White House personnel. So I think um, the most recent and best test case of the Justice Department's institutional ability to function, even in a super high stakes politicized setting like that, it actually is a very impressive performance record. So I'm not ready at all to, to throw, the, throw the Justice Department uh, model out. But it's worth noting in that context, right, that you already had the, the, the key offices in the Justice Department just about fully filled, right? That's not true right now. So next week, the Senate Judiciary Committee is set to hold confirmation hearings for the number two and number three spots at DOJ. Uh, Rod Rosenstein, the former yeah. U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland, Rachel Brand, who obviously was on the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight yeah. Board, there's a mark where we might come back to that. Um, Bobby, they're not confirmed yet. No, and, and may they please be confirmed very quickly. These are there's, both, no these solicitor, are both, there's no solicitor general. Yeah, these are both great nominees. They should be confirmed. Um, it's a question I don't know the answer to. Uh, if, if Sessions recused himself this afternoon, who is the acting post-Saliates deputy AG? So I think under the executive order that President Trump issued, it's the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. Um, mm, right, yeah. Um, whose name I'm afraid uh, I don't remember at the moment. Ah, I should have looked this up. Um, right, but yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so hopefully it'll be Rod soon enough. And in sessions, I think as a matter of policy, uh, one of one of the things that needs to be done here, you know, you're in the hole. Stop digging. Part of part of stop digging is 
recused. That's that's the first and foremost. I way mean, when even up. Jason Chaffetz and Kevin McCarthy, right, are are on Twitter and on the morning show saying he should recuse. That's just it's, it's an obvious. The writing's on the wall. They're, they're, whether whether this whole thing is is really fair from sort of his own internal perspective or not, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter. The, the, you're, it's it's in the way, right? It's in the way of a, a proper function of government. So recuse um, someone acting deputy attorney general or hopefully the actual deputy attorney general can then take uh, take the role. There may not be a need for any special counsel type investigation at that point. It could be the ordinary processes of FBI investigation and uh, Justice Department oversight uh, will yield the right results. If there's a need for a special counsel though, Steve, uh, I think a lot of our listeners who don't follow this stuff closely may assume that we're talking about Ken Starr, Whitewater, independent counsel stuff. That's not right. Why That's not? That's not right. So um, for, for all those who, who think back longingly to the Ken Starr days and here in Austin, that's more a... a, a that's it. His name is more familiar around here these days for different reasons that we shall not go into. <laughs> uh, but that are not even... That are even worse. Um, yeah, no, I really don't even want to go into those <laughs> issues. Those are bad um, issues. So, listen, Ken Starr was appointed under the auspices of the Independent Council Statute. This was part of the Ethics and Government Act of 1978, a post-Watergate reform, because, you know, there ain't nothing like history repeating. Um, and one of the things that I think folks may not realize about the Independent Council Statute is, thanks partly to how Ken Starr did, um, the government allowed it to expire in 1999. What that means in practice is that there is still, as we saw with the Ashcroft and Comey episode, um, a provision in the federal regulations for the appointment of what's called a special prosecutor or special counsel. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that there's nowhere near, Bobby, the kind of structural independence for that position um, that we saw for the independent counsel because it's entirely a creature of federal regulation like most federal regulations, it is subject to the plenary control of the agency that issued it, in this mm -hmm. case, the Department of Justice. Right. So, yes, we could see the appointment of some kind of special counsel under the reg. I guess, Bobby, I'd have concerns about the independence of that counsel in contrast to what we saw under the independent counsel statute. But, you know, I, I can see that in theory, and obviously with the Trump administration, there there's a lot of extra concerns sort of floating around about the, sort of the professionalism of what comes out of the White House. But, uh, again, if, if we assume... Sessions recuses, as he should, and I don't think uh, for Rod or Rachel, I don't think either of them can fairly be labeled with uh, anything that would go in the direction of, you know, these people are going to be pawns of Trump. Not no, at no, all. No, no. No, these are these super, are, these super are fantastic serious professionals. choices for those positions. So as long as, you know, if those are the officials who are at the top of the chain, I'm not worried at all. And I look back to the to the experience with Ashcroft, Comey, and Fitzgerald. And for that matter, what is Pat Fitzgerald doing these days? Is he interested in Russia times? <laughs> Isn't it? Wouldn't that be interesting? Why not? Paging Pat Fitzgerald. Paging Pat Fitzgerald. We've got a need to show some independence. But I will here. say, so so the problem is, Bobby, it, it, all the faith I have in Rod and in Rachel, which I and which I share with you, if there comes a point where the investigation is fruitful, and is producing. Right information that might be incredibly damaging to the Attorney General, yeah. um, to the President, to other high-ranking officials in this administration, uh, that's the point at which all these political pressures become very real. But wouldn't that all have been true with, with the Scooter Libby case and, and Pat Fitzgerald? I mean, Pat Fitzgerald's in, in investigation. But not everyone's Pat Fitzgerald, I guess, is my concern. So so back to Pedro and Pat Fitzgerald. Back to, yeah, exactly. But you know, I, that's I, the title of our episode. But, but you know, when I think about the, the type of person Pat is, yeah. And, and I think about what I know about uh, Rod, I don't yeah. know him personally, but yeah. Rachel, who yeah. I do know, yeah. um, I think these are these are similar people. I, I, have, I have a lot of confidence in these people. So I guess, I mean, to me, so um, our, our mutual friend Andy Wright has written a series of, I think, really good posts um, about the need for some kind of 
bigger, um, more external investigation. Now that I agree with because there's a lot more going on here than what would be in the purview of criminal investigation. Right, and so right, so a, a, a joint congressional committee or a select committee, I think, is the is the is the the proper way to think about it. That has the right composition. Would, <laughs> there's there's the rub. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But at least the idea, theoretically, yeah. um, is that a select committee could do things DOJ could not. Absolutely, no, I completely agree. Because look, this is bound up in larger questions that relate to uh, you know, relate to the role of uh, social media, the information operations, propaganda, all these other issues, um, the, the evolving state of the media. I think that having some kind of very systematic approach, some people have been talking about a 9-11 commission style thing. I don't think, I don't think that's quite the right model necessarily, but you know, it's not a bad idea insofar as what that does is get this away from current or elected officials you know, I kind of chuckled when we talked about getting the right composition, and I guess I chuckled because I was imagining, you know, how could you really do it in a way that wouldn't be guaranteed to hack off one side or the other of the political divide? Um, I don't think you can entirely avoid that by getting out of Congress, but getting away from having the lead figures be people who are running for re-election in, you know, uh, a year and a half probably is a, a worthy way to do it. Well, I also suspect, Bobby, that there are members of Congress um, who you and I would both feel more and less comfortable with sure. know, serving in this role. Right. But the problem is that the more the more we may like them or you may like them, maybe someone else doesn't like them. Well, if you and I agree, Bobby, come on, it has to be true. That is true. Well, that is where the center is found. <laughs> my friends, there still is a center out there. I am, <sighs> I am convinced of it. Hard to see sometimes. Well, you just don't look in Washington. Yeah. Unfortunately, right. Um, so I, I guess we've sort of ventilated out the, the Jim yeah. Sessions question, although, Bobby, who knows what more we're going to learn in the next days and, and week, there, weeks. There are other things we have to talk about before we, we have to shut this down in just a moment. I mean, for one thing, as I, as I was getting over to campus just now, I passed a bus, and on the side was this weird acronym. I couldn't decipher it at first. G-O-T-S-7. Game, Game of Thrones, Thrones season, season seven. seven. Come on, it took you. I, a, you, had to, you had to think about that. I was just trying to build drama for our listeners. I could. I could not be more excited. All right, I'll put you on the spot. We have guys. We have not planned the segment at all, by the way. So this is an interesting. <laughs> as if they can tell. <laughs> they can't tell. Um, the season finale of of season six. Okay. Right. Greatest hour in television history. I, the Close. winds of winter. It, it's in contention, but I got to say that I don't know that the series itself can ever top the Battle of Hardhome, when when mm. you had this sort of sword and sorcery zombie. Yeah, yeah, it is a very fine reference. I got to say that was the most enjoyable TV watching I've seen in a long time. So please, if you're well, also it, it helps in this case that I'm madly in love with with Brigitte Sorensen. Ah, uh, that well then there you go. That you know this is being recorded once, and broadcast. Once again, I'm very fortunate that you know, my she wife listens does not listen to, to this podcast. But Brigitte does. I mean, she's going to be uh, call me. <laughs> um, all right, so you know, after Pitch Perfect two, it was all over. <laughs> so, so Game of Thrones season seven, Bobby. So what I think is fun about winter this winter has come. I'll tell you my prediction here. It's not about the the show as such. It's about whether, the, without anyone wanting to admit it, what we've got here is a unique circumstance where an ongoing book series has given up trying to actually finishing as a book series, and if George Martin has not actually kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, agreed that, look, this thing's going to finish as a TV series and I can move on to other projects, maybe eventually churning out some books to finish it off. But I think this is sort of the uh, the cross-media equivalent to, you know, the Robert Jordan series having to be finished off by other authors. This is basically a, the same thing, but we're going to do it on TV instead. But so here's the big question, right? Daenerys Targaryen, Jon Snow. Fire and 
Nice. Too obvious, perhaps. This is the question, right? That like, is too obvious. Is, is it, I mean, but come on. So was the so was the scene in the Tower of Joy in the season finale of of, of season six. True enough. True enough. But that was foreshadowed endlessly and uh, endlessly. Um, so I don't know. I I'd like to think that they'll do something a little more interesting than just having sort of the the you know John and Daenerys team up. And, and I imagine there will be some twists along the way. Well, the Night King has to come and you know destroy a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I do worry that I have this theory about shows like this, and it, it it's replicated in endless versions of fantasy literature where the world building's exciting, the the initial setup of the tensions is great, the twists are great. But the thing that's actually really hard to do, just ask Battlestar Galactica, coming up with a really satisfying resolution. You know? Indeed. Well, um, so, so, right, so, so this is the, the other question is, my, my sister-in-law, Dory Shafrir, who has a fantastic new novel coming out next month called Startup, no pre-orders available on Amazon. Huh. Um, she actually wrote a great piece for BuzzFeed, her, her day job. Um, about Billions um, and the second season of Billions and how the problem with the second season of Billions isn't that the show has changed, it's that we've changed, right? Oh, that the you know, yeah, the yeah. sort of, in, in Donald Trump's America, Billions looks like a very different show. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if the Game of Thrones is, you know, it's, 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 it's further afield, right? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, Westeros doesn't look quite like Wall Street. <laughs> but I wonder if it's going to fall victim to the same concern. Well, certainly, people have made comments like that about House of Cards, yep, right? Yep. Um, yeah, I think Westeros is distant enough in certain respects. You know, we, we as a... Literally our, our world may have gone a little closer to <laughs> Westeros. But, um, Has winter come? Yeah, no, certainly not. We just had the warmest winter on record in Austin. That's saying something. And i got to say... It is 69 degrees and sunny outside once again, and I, I like these warm winters. Come, come to Austin, everybody. So, all right, so we got uh, series, sorry, season seven of Game yeah. of Thrones. We got baseball season around the corner. We've got the NCAA tournament. Bobby, we're going to have to do a March Madness edition pretty oh, soon. Oh, good idea, good um, idea. UCLA, I think, is the most dangerous team no one thinks enough about. I, so I have not been, UT has had a, a rough year. Mm. A lot of faith. Do we still have a basketball team? Oh, our women's basketball team is awesome. <laughs> Yes, but of course, in women's college basketball, I think it's quite clear that there are now two divisions in Division One. There's yeah. UConn. There's the UConn and division. And then there's the rest of Division One. <laughs> that could be. That could be. Uh, well, but of course, we, we have to mention our friends in the NBA. Kevin Durant's injury. Mm -hmm. Who Who's going to take the West? I, you know, I still There's only think, one correct answer, by the way. I, I still think it's not the Spurs. I, I still think it's the Warriors. What is wrong Even, with you? I know. I just, I haven't grown Oh, you think there. it's still the Warriors? I still yeah, think it's the Warriors. I think, uh... I think not. I think that the Spurs, who were only what like four games back from the, for the best record, everyone loves to talk about the Warriors' record and people. It's not still, the record. It's not, not the record. The no. question. The listen. The Warriors cannot be stopped if they shoot well. And so the question, right? The question for the Warriors is without Kevin Durant, yeah. with a Spurs team that plays yeah. good defense. Here's the thing: to get Durant to clear the space, they lost a lot of second unit pieces. Right. The one thing the Spurs always do better than everyone else throughout this amazing dynasty run they've been on <laughs> is a really good second unit. The Spurs' first unit is, is always a top-tier unit. Maybe not always the very best top-tier unit, but it's always in the discussion. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it qualifies as an, uh, one of the elite units. But the second unit, sort of if you compare to replacement level, right, the second unit for the Spurs is where they really get people. Well, because they don't drop off that much. So we might end up having to have a wager on this once we get to, to playoff time. But yeah. color me unconvinced that Kevin Durant's injury by itself is the the magical path clearing feature that gets the Spurs to the NBA easy, Finals. Won't be easy, but I think I, I think we if hopefully we get a Spurs Warriors 
Western final, which, as we all know, is the actual final, and that will be some great TV. <laughs> okay, so wait, wait. So one no of my best friends, in Cleveland, one of my right? best friends, is a diehard Cleveland Cavaliers fan, and if he did not hear me <laughs> respond fiercely, <laughs> oh yes. to that comment, oh. which seems to neglect who actually won the NBA title last year. Hey, I was I was excited for that. I think I, I don't like the way that people hate on LeBron. I think LeBron's great, and so I thought that was exciting. Of course, I love it that they beat the Warriors. But by the way, Rakesh, that is a shout out for you. There you go, Rakesh. Uh, I will say, of course, obviously signing. Darren Williams and Andrew Bogut. There, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, the Cavs, I think, quite clearly are still the team to beat. In the East. No doubt. I think in the NBA. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we right. can all agree it's not the Rockets. It is, Sorry, my Houston friends. It is not the Rockets. Um, you know what? I think we can all agree. We're done. It's not the Knicks. <laughs> there. I knew we could find something where in complete 100 All right, so we're not sure about Jeff Sessions, but we know that the Knicks are not the way. Yeah. The, the On Knicks. that note, so, Bobby, next week we got to find something new to talk about. Something tells me this is not the last we're going to hear about Russia. Maybe not. All right. Uh, Dosvidanya, comrades. <laughs> Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.